Thanks, Todd. Uh, before we get started today, I want to personally invite you to be a part of one of the 10 upcoming vision nights that we have as a church. And this will be a night for us to articulate where we sense God leading crossroads in the future and how you can really be a part of that journey. Now, you need to know up front that we are going to be talking about the necessity to fund this vision, uh, but at the same time, uh, you will not be asked to give anything on that particular night. And so uh, I just want to encourage you to not just be a fan of the vision and to not just cheer it on, but to actively be a part of that. Because I know uh, that our best days as a church aren't behind us, uh, but are still ahead. And many generations from here on out will be impacted uh, because of this new vision that we have as a church, disciples making disciples. And so what that means is I'm talking to every person in here, young and old, uh, come be a part of these nights. You can see your bulletin uh, for more information about that. Well, this weekend we do begin a brand new series called Unveiled, where we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation and I thought I would start out today by unveiling something to you that's recently happened to me. Now, when I tell you this, you're more than likely going to think that I'm making this up. You might question whether or not I'm all there as a person. Quite used to that, and that's okay. And so here we go. For my whole entire life, I've only had one nostril. Now, I'm, I'm not making this up either. About a month ago, I went to see the doctor only to find out that my left nasal passage was 95% blocked by a bone. It's what doctors call a deviated septum. Now, this happens when your nasal septum in between your two nostrils is displaced to one side, making one nasal passage a lot smaller than the other. Now, I knew that there was an issue at hand when the doctor took one look up my nose and he said, Oh, my goodness, I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> And then he asked me something, and to this day, I don't know how to take it. He said, Patrick, did you get hit in the head with a baseball bat as a kid? <laughs> now, sadly, this is not the first time someone's asked me this question before. In fact, my wife has been wondering the same thing for several years now. Now, I have to tell you that it's not like for my whole life I didn't know I couldn't breathe out of my left nostril. I mean, of course I knew that. And if you don't find this the least bit weird, then you will definitely question my intelligence when I tell you that I just accepted it as normal. I mean, the reason why I waited over 20 years to do something about it and to see a doctor is because I sincerely thought that everybody just had one nostril. I never claimed to be the brightest bulb in the light drawer, okay? Now, this is bad. But what's even worse is thinking about how many times over the years I missed out on getting a really good parking spot because technically, I've been handicapped. <laughs> and so I'm thrilled to tell you today that three weeks ago I had the corrective surgery and I have joined the club because now I have two nostrils. <laughs> <clears throat> I promise there's a tie-in here somewhere. But i got to tell you, when that happened, it's like a whole new world has been opened up to me. It's called oxygen. <laughs> I find myself more relaxed throughout the day. I don't have to open my mouth to breathe. I'm sleeping better at night. And you see, what I didn't think was possible, I've now experienced. And truthfully, I'll never be the same. I mean, something I didn't know existed beforehand has now become my everyday reality. Now, you see, when you and I open up the book of Revelation, 
It's like we see and we experience something that we didn't know was there to begin with. You see, revelation stirs our imagination to know Jesus on a level that many people miss because they just didn't think that it was there to begin with. It's like they've settled for what's normal all along. But what if? What if there's more out there? I mean, what if having your soul awakened to the awe and the wonder of God could be the answer to all of life's problems? And so here at Crossroads for the next nine weeks, we want to encounter the living God in a way that you didn't think was possible. Now, traditionally, well-meaning Christians have either placed too much or too little emphasis upon the book of Revelation. It's no doubt one of the most controversial texts in all of Scripture. And so that's why I think it's really important, before we go any further, to operate out of, the, out of the same page by understanding this. That Revelation has little to do with decreasing our curiosity about the future. And everything to do with increasing our intimacy with Jesus in the present. Now you might want to write this down because this is so important to understand throughout the entirety of this series. Now, if you and I open up this book with the intention of unlocking some mystery that we didn't think was there to begin with, we've totally missed the point. You see, when Daniel and John got a glimpse into the future, both fell down on their face as if they were dead. And so for those of us who are in Christ, we approach this book with the desire that our affections would be stirred for Jesus all the while eagerly expecting his second return when he will come and he will renew all things. Now for those of us who are outside of Christ, it is my prayer that this series would serve as a needed wake-up call for you. That your life is headed in the wrong direction and your only hope of escaping the holy wrath of God is by placing your trust in, placing your faith in the one who has paid it all, and that is Jesus' finished work upon the cross. Now, traditionally, uh, this has been a pretty avoided book in the church. And you know why I think that's the case overall? It's because I think a lot of us are afraid of what the implications may be for our life. Now, here's the thing. You and I naturally avoid accountability and reject authority because we want control, right? And so if it's true, if it's true that Jesus is going to come back again one day, and if it's true that we are all going to stand before his throne and give an account for how well we lived in this life, I probably don't know you all that well. But I'm willing to bet that some things would probably look a little different in your life. Bible teacher David Reagan says it like this, the second coming of Jesus will either be your blessed hope or your holy terror. And so before we look at chapter 1 and see a picture of Jesus unveiled, you need to understand that a pastor by the name of John wrote this book to a group of believers in the first century in Asia Minor. They were suffering through a lot of persecution. Now the Roman emperor Domitian was, uh, had, had demanded that all people everywhere bow down and worship him as Lord and God. Now obviously this didn't set too well for a group of people whose only allegiance was to an eternal king. And so when all the churches refused to bow down to Domitian, he unleashed persecution on them all. In fact, it's for this reason that the disciple John wrote this book in isolation. And so we know that John was between the ages of 80 and 90 years old when the Holy Spirit gave him this vision through an angel. And do you know what that tells us to this day? That your greatest, most significant days as a person can happen when you're checked into a nursing home or when hospice has been called. 
And so if you have your Bibles, what I want you to do is uh, open up to the last book in all the Bible, Revelation. And we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 12. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. I believe we're going to start out on page 868. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours to keep. That's our free gift to you. We want you to take it home and get familiar with it. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, we're never given a physical description of him. But in Revelation 1, John paints a picture of this Jesus that he came face to face with. Now, this is not some scrawny, bearded hippie with a whiny voice giving the peace sign. I mean, as we're about to see, Jesus' appearance is laced with symbolism that I will do my best to explain. Now, as we read this, I want you to put yourself in the position of these early believers who first received this letter. Imagine that a child has recently been beheaded because you profess Christ as Lord. Imagine that you were let go from your job of 30 years simply because you started sharing your faith in the workplace. And don't you think that if that were you, you would need to be reminded that in spite of all your doubts, that Jesus is still king, that he is still Lord. And you're not suffering for nothing. Now this image of Christ rocked John's world. Check out verse 12 of chapter 1. Here's what we read. John says, When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands, that's a key phrase that you might want to underline, in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Now the lampstands here represent the seven different churches that Jesus will later address in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, Jesus, referred to here as the Son of Man, is standing right in the middle of the lampstands. I want you to notice that he is not standing beside them. He's not standing below them or above them. Why? Because you can't separate Christ from the church. And you see, that's the cry of many in my generation. Many who have been burned by or disappointed by the church want to say yes to Jesus, but no to the church. But from what we see right here, the two are inseparable. There's no such thing. You see, in spite of her flaws, the church is Jesus' precious bride. It is the place where the voice of God can, boast, can be most heard loud and clear in our life. Now, a lampstand provides light in a dark room. And in the same way, the church is called to be the light in this very dark world. Now here at Crossroads, you have to know that we are not perfect. In fact, if you haven't been disappointed by us in some way yet, just give us a few more months. (laughs) But do you know why it's good if a brother or sister in Christ occasionally disappoints you? It's because you see that in itself is an alert. That the church is not about meeting your every preference or need. But at the same time, it is a safe place for broken people who don't have it all together. I mean, thank God the church is a little messy at times because at least I know that's a safe place where I fit in and I can belong. John uh, continues here. Let's keep going. He says this, Jesus was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. Here we're reminded that Jesus is the great high priest. And what that means for us is that Christ is our advocate before the Father and he has enabled the Holy Spirit to dwell within every follower of Jesus. Look at verse 14. He goes on. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes, they were like flames of fire. 
Now this white hair here is a reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel where God is referred to as the ancient of days. Now this tells us that Jesus is God. He's always existed and always will. Now some believe that this is a reference, this symbolism, uh, pointing to the wisdom of Jesus. Since many in the ancient world viewed white or gray hair as a sign of wisdom, since obviously that person had lived a lot of life. That means for us that 2,000 years ago, Todd Bussey would have been very respected. (laughs) I'm not sure what that would have meant for David Reinhardt, though. Now then John says that his eyes were like flames of fire. You see, the early believers, when they read that, they probably would have gotten a little emotional at that point. Because what that meant to them was that Jesus, he saw everything. All the evil. All the hate. All the discrimination and suffering that had been brought to them because of their faith in him. You see, his eyes were fiery because Jesus is not a passive God who will allow injustice to go on without his judgment. You see, Jesus, one time, a time is coming when he will unleash his righteous fury on all the wickedness in this world today. You see, evil can run, but it cannot hide from an all-seeing God. And that's what we see here. John continues hammering home this point with us in verse 15. Look at what he says. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Now, more than likely, the bronze feet was a reference to Psalm 110, which is foretelling of a prevailing king who will subdue his enemies to a point that they are nothing more than a footstool for his comfort. Now, interestingly enough, it's a prophecy referring to Jesus. Some ancient kings celebrated their victories by literally placing their feet on defeated enemies. And so these feet of Jesus point to his ultimate triumph over all forces of evil. Now this is a different Jesus than we find in the manger. Now his thunderous voice means that Christ speaks with authority and he will be obeyed, whether that be in this life or the life to come. John illustrates this a little bit further in verse 16. Look at what he says. He held the seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. Now, these seven stars represented the pastors that were in charge of all the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 that Jesus will later address. Now, because the number seven communicates something that is whole or complete all the way throughout Scripture, we can interpret this to mean that Any Christ-glorifying church over the past 2,000 years is counted as a community that Jesus ultimately is in charge of and cares for. And I have to tell you that what I love most about working with Ken and Todd and Jack, many of our elders and staff, is that they lead and they serve in a way that says, look, it's not about us, but Jesus is really the one in charge here. I want you to notice that John says that a two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. What's that all about? Well, this represented the power of God's word. And so that's why we as a church, we will never apologize for teaching the Bible. Something supernatural happens when we open up God's word and we come ready to hear from him. And so regardless of where the cultural winds may blow, I promise that we will always be a church that will preach the word regardless of how difficult or popular it may be at the time. Now, I am convinced that a time is coming when free speech will be redefined and preaching certain parts of this book will become illegal. But I promise you that we will always preach the word. 
You see, it is far more important to fear God than to run after the approval of men. And you see, we see that all throughout Scripture. Now the last piece of symbolism is at the end of verse 16, it says this, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. The radiance of Jesus' face. And yet again, it points to his deity. You see, it depicts his glorious presence. And quite honestly, this was way too much for John to handle. What do I mean? Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. When was the last time that happened to you? Or like many, have you grown so familiar with Jesus and his word that you lack marvel for who he really is and what he's done? Now I want you to realize that John knew Jesus better than just about anyone in his life. And yet his comfort with Christ did not numb him to the glory, the power, and the strength and majesty of Jesus. Now this tells us that you and I don't have to live a calloused and complacent life. I believe our greatest need as followers of Jesus is a constant, fresh awareness of Christ in his glory. And so Jesus finally speaks. And from this response, we can identify a few implications for our life. And if what we just read and what we just saw is true, I want you to know that I'm staking my whole life and eternity upon the fact that it is, that it has to mean something for us. There have to be some implications. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. Jesus knows what we need when we need it most. And right here, John simply needed to be told that there was no reason to be afraid. Therefore, when you and I stand in awe and wonder of who God is, That means something for us. It means that first of all, you and I, we are free to live boldly. You and I are free to live boldly. That's the first implication. You might want to write these down. You know, the most common phrase in all the Bible is this, don't be afraid. We're told it some 365 times throughout Scripture, one for each day of the year. I mean, after all, the only thing that stands between you and I living boldly is fear itself. You see, fear occurs in our life when our focus shifts from God's supremacy to our inadequacies. I mean, think about it. If what we just read is true and you and I really believed it, don't you think our life would look a little different? I mean, what would change for you if you began seeing Jesus as the sovereign warrior king that he is? This week I uh, sat down in my office and I just wrote a few things out that would change for me if I believe this more completely. I wouldn't ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And so here we go. The first thing is this. I wouldn't fear sharing my faith as much. I wouldn't worry so much about the approval of people. I wouldn't be so anxious about something bad happening to my family. I wouldn't lose sleep over the future and how my life will unfold. I would be quicker to forgive. I wouldn't allow my identity to be wrapped up into what I do or what I've done. I think I'd let go of the past a lot easier than I do. I would be more patient with my wife Savannah and our two kids. My blood pressure wouldn't rise driving down the Lloyd Express because of the way some of you drive. (laughs) Actually, I'd probably stay the same. 
I think I'd pray more. I think I'd have a deeper hunger to obey God's word. Now you may be thinking, wow, Patrick, you've got a long way to go. And you would be correct. You see, growing in the grace of God has always been about a process. It's a journey. And he has been more than patient with me. And he's willing to be more than patient with you too. But could it be? Could it be that we have been so distracted by our fears and inadequacies that we have lost sight of who Jesus really is? Now let me be straight with you for just a moment. I get it, there are a lot of things in this world that give us a reason to be afraid. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are going through horrific persecution. The Ebola virus is making its way into the states. You can't scroll through your news feed without being informed of the most recent ISIS beheading or radical Islam advancement. And if you and I are not careful, our immediate reaction is to hunker down, hide, and just tremble with fear. But it does beg the question. It does beg the question. We do get it that there is something worse than death itself, right? I mean, we do understand who's ultimately on our side, don't we? Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 10. He said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so for those who relentlessly attempt to extinguish the church, may it be that they can't kill us fast enough. For every Christian who is martyred because of their faith, may we send thousands of replacements their way May we be a church and a nation that heads into every people group, every nation, and even our very own neighborhoods with the confidence that though we may suffer and be opposed for a time, ultimately the God of creation is on our side and promises to give us just enough grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. I mean, after all, God tells us he is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said it like this. He said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who are not cross bearers here below. And so where are you at on this? If your level of fear supersedes your sight of Jesus, then therein lies your issue. You see, if you are paralyzed by fear, then perhaps you have taken your eyes off the one who specializes in resurrections Now, another implication I think that we see from this text is this. You and I, we are called to suffer patiently. Suffer patiently. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I am the living one. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. These early believers' homes were being set on fire. They were imprisoned. Some had been placed in arenas with tigers, and their death was met with the roar of a crowd. And for John... He had been exiled to a forgotten island called Patmos near modern-day Turkey. Now, Patmos probably brought about the most lonely, the loneliest of days for him. I imagine he probably awoke each day wanting God to call him home and just put him out of his misery. Society had told him that he was unwanted and worthless. Perhaps John just wanted to have family near. He frequently was hungry and thirsty. All of his friends had been martyred because of their faith. But there he sat at the end of his life. On an island called Patmos. Miserable. Defeated. And somewhat hopeless. Wondering if God had overlooked him. Now maybe we're not talking about John anymore. Perhaps we're talking about you. Your pat most recently has been unemployment. Perhaps you're on a forgotten island of divorce. 
It could be that you recently buried a parent or maybe you're knee deep into depression or you're suffering through what some might call a midlife crisis that has you wondering, is this all there is in life? About six and a half years ago, I encountered my first Patmos in this life. I was newly married and excited about life. And on a Friday morning in January, I woke up with this back pain that had been there for the past several months. But on this particular day, I decided to do something about it. And so I went into a local urgent care center to get it checked out. The doctor took a look at me, took some x-rays and ran some tests. He came back in my room about an hour later and he said, look, I, I don't know what to tell you. Something's really abnormal here. I'm going to have to rush you to an emergency room. And so over the course of the next several days, they ran some tests on me. And eventually I had to have a surgical biopsy to determine what was going on. On a Tuesday morning, I remember looking to my left as I woke up from this surgery and I remember seeing my young 19-year-old wife with tears in her eyes saying, Patrick, it's not good. You have cancer. At some point during my stay at the hospital, I remember lying awake in bed one night thinking to myself, I'm not as invincible as I thought I was. Now, at that particular time, I didn't know if I was going to live long enough to celebrate my one-year wedding anniversary. I didn't know what the process of recovery, if at all, would look like for me. And, but you see, for one of the first times in my life, I realized that God was teaching me that his grace really is sufficient regardless of circumstances. Now, I had doubts. I mean, I questioned what God was up to. I mean, we really struggled throughout this, throughout this season. And we wondered if he was really in control. And though I have since been healed of that cancer, I still live with the possibility, if not probability, that my cancer will return to me one day in, later in life. But you know what? Even if it does, I can now say from experience that God will be with me every step of the way. You see, Jesus never promised to exempt me from grief, but what he did promise is that he is good and he will take care of me through it. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 8. He says, and we know that in all things, that's a key phrase, underline that, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, what Paul is not saying here is that everything happens for a reason. A lot of people believe this. Here's the thing. God is not some angry cosmic force who gets pleasure out of inflicting his people with heartache. And many of you have, many of you have suffered through some legitimate pain and it's left you thinking that it was either brought on by God or there was some specific reason behind it. That's why in suffering, in grief, you must not mistake reason for purpose. You see, reason says there is a predetermined cause for your grief. But on the other hand, purpose is when God takes our pain and he accomplishes the opposite of what it was originally intended to do. Again, the key phrase in this verse is, in all things. Now, we may never see the purpose this side of heaven. And don't be too quick to find purpose in your pain when you're going through it. I mean, some of you have just been through some stuff that doesn't make sense at all. But what we do know is that God is good. And he promises to take care of us even when our world comes crashing down. And so for those of you who find yourselves stranded on an island called Patmos, can you hang on? I mean, can you come to a place in your life where you will start trusting God's promises even when you don't want to? Because whether or not you feel it, whether or not you feel it, a day is coming 
when you will get to hold your unborn child and you will get to hear him laugh. You will have a conversation with your dad again. A suicide won't seem like your only way out. A day is approaching when you won't even know what loneliness or betrayal feels like. It's a place where there's no such thing as autism, sexual abuse, and anything in between. But in the meantime, we wait eagerly, expectantly, and patiently. And so as Jesus' followers, you and I are called to live boldly, suffer patiently, and lastly, die confidently. This is really the recipe of the Christian life. This is what we're called to do. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Now there's a reason why this picture up here is is up here. It's obviously a picture of a key. And if you think about it, a key is something that communicates authority, right? I mean, I have a key to my house because it's the place where I live. I have a key to my car because it's my car. And so what Jesus is saying here in this text is that I have the key to the very thing that seems to be most final in life, and that's death. And so Jesus is declaring that there is no person, there is no power that is above him in this life and even in the life to come. And so Jesus has authority over life because he has power over death. And so for every person that dies trusting in his name, we can die with confidence knowing that when we fall asleep, we will awake in the Father's arms. Around A.D. 125, a Greek by the name of Aristides wrote to a friend about why this new religion, Christianity, was so wildly popular among people. I realize he's an outsider and this is what he wrote. These were his observations. He said, if any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and they offer thanks to God. And what do they do? They escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. Christians die better than anyone because we know it's not a goodbye, but it's a see you later. We face death with confidence knowing that when we breathe our last and we stand before God, Jesus will say to the Father, he's with me. I already paid her debt. Hebrews chapter 2 explains this a little better by saying this. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. What does that mean? Well, he, he expounds, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Make no mistake. Jesus confiscated the keys of death from Satan. And so if you have repented of the sin in your life and you have trusted your life in the hands of Jesus, you have been set free from the fear of dying. You and I, we're dying right now. And so that means that every person in this room and in the chapel, there's really only two groups of people. Those of us who are dying anxiously and those of us who are dying confidently. Which one are you? Bishop Berger used to explain to children what it was like to die by telling of a story of a father who went to town with his five-year-old son. They came across this bridge that had been wiped out by a violent storm. There were pieces of wood jutting out of the raging current, and so the father bent down, picked up 
grabbed his son's wrist and drug him across to the other side. Well, they stayed in town for so long that by the time they headed back to their home, it was already dark outside. As they began leaving the village, the father heard the son whimpering a little bit. And he said, what's wrong, buddy? The troubled little boy said, daddy, we barely made it across that terrible river getting here in the daylight. How in the world are we going to make it across when it's dark out? And so just at that time, the dad bent down and he picked up his troubled little boy and immediately the, the son fell asleep. The next thing the boy knew is he woke up in his bed in his father's home. He looked to his right and there his dad was standing in the doorway with the sunlight shining through the windows. Berger explained, I think that's what it's like to die. That which we fear the most, we never really experience. We fall asleep in the father's arms. We awaken in the father's house and the light of his love is shining through. You see, because Jesus holds the key to heaven, you and I don't have to fear dying. Rather, when we breathe our last and we pass on, we can with confidence know that we are going to awake in the Father's home. I say this with confidence because somewhere over in the Middle East today, there is an unoccupied tomb where our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was laid for three short days. And you see, it was in that tomb he experienced death so that you and I would never really have to. And so what we're going to do right now as a church is we're going to remember that pivotal moment like we do each week by taking communion. And in just a few moments, the, uh, the bread and the juice will be passed, that little piece of bread. What that represents is Jesus' body that was broken, tortured, and abused as he hung upon the cross. That cup of juice... It's symbolic for Jesus' blood that was poured as he hung there. And you be assured that if you've given and you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that the holy wrath of God for the sin in your life has been absorbed because of what Jesus did for you upon that cross. And so we're going to have some time to reflect and think. Uh, and then uh, after a few moments, the band's going to come out and we're going to sing one last song and then uh, get out of here. But you remember that as a follower of Jesus, because Jesus is who he is, we're called to live boldly, suffer patiently, and die confidently. Let's pray. God, I just have to start out by saying sorry for how many times I've just watered down my view of who you are. And God, like a lot of us in here, I've been calloused, I've grown cold. I've almost grown spiritually apathetic. And so, God, I just pray for renewal and revival among us that we would begin seeing you every single day for the warrior king Jesus that you are. Because you are strong, you are mighty. And though we are not, if we trust in you, you promise to take care of us. And I know that this message, um, I know this message lands on some pretty difficult circumstances represented here in this room right now. And so God, would you just assure us that you are good? Would you remind us that you will give us just enough grace and mercy to help us in our time of need? And so God, in the meantime, we will be patient. We will wait. And we will eagerly await when you come and you make all things new. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.